This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. I'm here with Ben Perry, and thank you for joining us for episode 14 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today has been in the Air Force for 36 years. He served at multiple locations throughout the world and is currently serving as fire chief at Ramstein Air Base in Germany. He was also recently inducted into the Military Firefighter Heritage Hall of Fame. Please welcome Chief John Thompson. Hey, Chief. How's it going? How are you? Good. Great. Great to have you on. Thanks for coming on. Look forward to talking to you today. Happy to be here. So uh, many of us know you, or at least many of us have heard of you. uh, But for those who have not heard of you, can you tell us who you are? Tell us how long you've been in the Air Force Fire Service and what bases you've been at? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I came in in 83. Uh, back then tech school was six weeks. So I graduated from lovely Chanute Air Force Base and headed off to Zweibrücken Air Base, Germany in October of 83 and stayed there for three years. Then went back to Chanute Base Department. Uh, that's where I met Chief Donan and several others that would be influential in my, in my life and, uh, left Chanute Base Department in 89, May of 89. Headed to Iraklion Air Station, Crete, Greece. Criminal, criminal assignment. Uh, just terrible on the med and all that stuff. So we were there uh, 89 to 93 and then headed to Anderson for the first time as a, as a young know-nothing tech sergeant. And uh, was at Anderson from 93 to 96 and then headed to Kadena and was there from March of 96 to August of 2000. And then uh, took a, my only remote assignment to clear Air Force Station, Alaska. Giant fire department. I think there was 24 of us there. Uh, and then I had a follow-on to Nellis. And uh, that got to Nellis in late 2001, just after 9-11. And uh, spent most of 2002 deployed uh, or TDY or something to that effect. And then landed in IUD Air Base uh, in December of 2002. When it was all tent city and uh, stayed there during the war left in july of 03 put my retirement paperwork in from the desert didn't even know you could do that uh came back to nellis and got hired on as uh, ac of uh, health and safety but was only in that job for a month or so and then got moved over to training and then uh, about a year later a little longer than a year i was sniffing around and i took the chief job at selfridge air national guard base in michigan and uh, we got there in February of 05 and then left there and went to Guam, Anderson again uh, in June of 2006 and stayed there till May of 2015, headed back to Nellis in May of 2015 and then arrived here at Ramstein in January 2019. So 36 years. A lot of places. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of repeats too. Yeah, so I noticed Guam was on there twice. Anderson, was there a particular place that you liked more than the others? Yes, uh, you know, I, I don't think I had a bad assignment, but Kadena by far was my favorite assignment. Japanese people are awesome, and man, stuff burned there the time I was there. Car fires, house fires, unattended cooking fires, plane crashes. You know, just it was it was a sexy place to be a firefighter. Was that because there were more than just Air Force? There were Army and Marine Corps. I'm not sure, familiar with Kadena, but no, I mean the the, Marine, the Marines were are, are on base, but uh, Kadena is Kadena. It's mainly 
uh, Air Force, but the, you know, the, the Marines had a couple of the crashes and things like that. But no, I just think it was that time. I think that uh, the military, we didn't make as much money as we did uh, today as we did back then. So a lot of people had used cars there. A lot of people cooked at home. And uh, I just think it was, it was a great time. You know, it was a great time for stuff catching on fire and you, you, you learn stuff in tech school and advanced courses, and then you actually get to put it into play in real life situations. Selfridge, is that Michigan, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, and and you took that job because of the opportunity, or what? Yeah, it was uh, my my chief, uh, my mentor at Nellis, uh, Chief Mike Bowley. He kept bagging on me. He's like, "Look, man, you gotta you gotta keep keep trying, keep shooting for the stars, keep going up." And uh, you know, it was it was I was leery uh, to to go out of that comfort zone or whatever. But I called the outgoing chief there, and uh, he said, "Yeah," he says, "We got a." a BX, a commissary, uh, KC-135s, F-16s, uh, H-860s, base housing. And I'm like, guard base? It's got all that stuff, you know, or whatever. So I was intrigued. Uh, and the mistake I've been making as a civilian is is I was like, yeah, let me let me put in for something and see what happens. And care, careful what you apply for. <laughs> uh, it, was there a noticeable difference with guard and uh, active duty? Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Now, the department itself, um, all civilian, all GS civilian. So any department like that, that equates to Union City. Uh, and, and, and you're going to you're going to learn or, or you're going to be crucified one or the other. And I think I just got in. I got out before they got a chance to uh, to stake me up. But uh, I, I learned I learned a ton there. But, yeah, the guard, the guard is uh, completely different. I mean. Uh, they, they have a ton of people that are, you know, real firefighters in big cities and stuff like that. Uh, and then they got, you know, they got people that, that aren't, you know, so it's, it is, it is a different world than active duty. And it was that essentially, that's what I felt like I was coming off active duty, going on into the guard and, uh, it, it, it took some getting used to. There's some things I saw there that, uh, you don't normally see on an active base for sure. Well, Chief, uh, congratulations on your recent selection to the Military Firefighter Heritage Hall of Fame. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I can. I mean, I, I be honest with you, uh, wasn't till the last couple of years ago I didn't know that uh, that there was such a thing. Uh, and then, I, you know, I got notified uh, earlier this year, and uh, you know, I didn't just think that you know we're all tough and and all that stuff, and. Uh, so the, the morning I got the notification, I called my wife. I was doing my 24 at the station. And I called my wife and I was reading her the email and my, my voice cracked. Like I was starting to cry just by, by you know, telling her. And uh, she's my biggest fan. Uh, you know, she's just over, over the moon with all that stuff. And I was trying to get back to the States right before the COVID lockdown in, of Europe. And I was kind of focused on other things, but uh, just the hundreds of, emails and Facebook messages and stuff like that. Uh, so I did some digging and, and looked up uh, you know, that the Heritage Foundation has been around since 2001. Uh, Mike Roberson, and those guys down there just do an incredible job and, and, and unsung, you know, because most of us don't know about it. But they didn't start doing the Hall of Fame part till like 2013. And if you follow sports at all, like baseball or, or any of those other sports, the first year the Hall of Fame comes into existence, you know, they got a lot of people that they're, they're pushing in that, that it's been decades since they had a Hall of Fame. So they inducted 13 that first year, just 
crazy, incredible names like Lewis F. Garland, you know what I mean? Things like that, you know, the stuff that, uh, you know, things are just legendary people. So, and then they've, they've inducted one or two people, sometimes three, you know, every year since then. Uh, and when you read some of the names in there, I, frankly, I don't, I don't see it. I mean, I, I love what I do and, 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 and I, I, I get a lot of compliments and all that stuff, but I don't know if I, if I measure up to some of the folks that I read in there. I wonder what the criteria is for selection. I'm not saying that you're not deserving or anybody else isn't deserving. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I wonder, uh, yeah, what kind of criteria? Is it a vote? Do they look at your, your 36 it is. years? And- it, 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 so that all I know, I don't know a lot about that part. So, uh, But they, uh, they, there has to be a write-up. And uh, one of my former deputies, who's now the chief out of Mountain Home Chance Kruger, did the write-up. So he called me a few months back and he started asking me goofy questions. And I was like, why are you asking this? And he's like, look, I'm submitting you for the Hall of Fame. So you can either cooperate with me and give me the real stuff or I'll make it up <laughs> type thing. So anyways, but uh, yeah, talking with a couple people that that sent me some congratulations stuff that it's uh, a board of peers, you know, uh, a bunch of retired legendary types that, that get in there and, and read that stuff again. I'm, I'm an old baseball guy, you know, so it used to be if you stay around long enough and get 3,000 hits or five in our home runs, you know, you're in, you know, so may, maybe mine's like three bomber crashes in one year or something like that. Maybe, maybe that's what it takes. I don't know. <laughs> and, and I understand Chief Denan made it in this year as well. Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, Dave and I, I met him in December of uh, 1986 when I got to Chanute. Him and I were both based uh, department together, uh, both on B shift. Uh, he was uh, ended up being rescue crew chief, and I I was the rescue driver until I tore a door off the rescue truck. But uh, so yeah, Dave, Dave and I have uh, been around a long time, known each other a long time. If you ask me what it takes to get in the Hall of Fame, Dave hits every box. I, I I have to imagine, you know, I mean they've won Air Force Fire Department of the Year like six out of the last eight years or something like that, you know, or whatever. And uh, he's he's got such a great staff up there, great programs and. You know, other than, you know, his college that he roots for and things like that, he doesn't have a lot of holes in his game. <laughs> I wonder if they're going to invite you guys on to the B-board members here when you start voting now that you're inductees. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I, I, I get the impression that it's, uh, uh, you know, folk, folks that have been out of the career field for, for a while, but they're still uh, just an amazing name. So like Chief George Hall contacted me and said that he was normally one of the board members. But I uh, had something going on this year medically, I think, or something. So he, he wasn't on the board this year. So maybe I snuck in that way. I don't know. Well, Chief, there's so many topics we could talk about with you about um, from civilian personnel matters, you know, building your network or mafia, as you call it. Mm. And uh, just so many more experiences from being a, a military and civilian firefighter for as long as you have. Today, though, let's talk about large scale emergencies. I understand that you've been a part of a handful of significant emergencies in your time. One of the most significant is the B-1 incident you were part of at Anderson Air Force Base, Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. Would you like to share the story about that incident? Maybe highlight some of the lessons you've been able to pull from that over time? Yes, and uh, I'll, I'll apologize up front. I've given this briefing probably a hundred times, but uh, never recorded. Everything has always been with uh, playing the video, which pretty much speaks for itself. It's uh, pretty astounding to watch. Uh, all the firefighters and uh, maintenance crew and, and the B-1 crew members run around the, the bottom of the plane and, and not get hit. Uh, so anyways, I'll, I'll give it a shot and, and hopefully it uh, 
it, it's worthy of a listen. So, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, early March 2008, it was uh, almost three weeks to the day after uh, the B-2 had crashed at Anderson. So uh, we were doing a uh, retirement ceremony for one of our GS-8s at Anderson, uh, and uh, IFE came in. It's one of those 50-minute ETA things, so they had plenty of time to get out there. So we finished up the retirement thing, and uh, me and my wife were walking Mr. Egan and his wife out to the parking lot. And uh, I had my radio with, we were planning on going to lunch afterwards. And, you know, you could hear the plane land and you could hear Chief Two talking and, you know, you're just like you do as a firefighter, you're listening and, and answering questions you hear, you know, in your head. So went back inside and we were getting ready to head to lunch. And uh, I hear the rescue crew chief say with a very frantic tone, you know, those tones when you hear the alarm operator say, hey, we have reported fire or whatever. You just, you knew something was going on. When he says, hey, we need aircraft trucks up, chocks up here immediately. And you're like, all right. So Senior Master Sergeant Lean was the deputy at the time. He poked his head around the door. And I was like, that doesn't sound good. So right after I said that, then you hear Chief Two scream, get those trucks out of there. Get those trucks out of there. Move it. And I was just, you know, conjuring up. And I couldn't conjure up something as bad as what, what had actually happened. So told the wife, yeah, I guess we're not going to launch me. And the senior jumped in chief one and uh, off we went. So on the way to the scene, uh, the base of engineer was coming the other way and saw us go by with my hair on fire. And he says, uh, he says, hey, chief, he says, uh, is there something I need to know about? And I was like, uh, I was like, yeah, I said, I think the airplane ran into one of the fire trucks. I said, chief, two, can you confirm? Uh, and he came back and he said, uh, it ran into two. So, you know, you're just like, all right, great. You know, so you're worried about the health and, you know, did anybody get hurt, hurt and all that stuff. So we get out on scene and, uh, you know, what I like to tell people at AFIT and places I give presentations, you know, when you get on scene, you're supposed to have training or experience to help you through, you know, a large scale event, uh, I didn't have a checklist for that uh, anywhere. I didn't know what I, what I was supposed to do. So, but I, I knew I was mad. I knew I was uh, disappointed and I think I was scared. So I went up to chief two and uh, AC station captain and the AC of prevention were standing in a little gaggle right there. The AC of prevention was on the truck. Uh, we were trying to get him trained up so he could fill in as the AC, you know, on, on his 24. So I looked at the AC and I said, look, I said, I, I really don't want to talk to you guys right now. I said, uh, but in a minute, I'm going to want to know why I got more people on Chief 2 today than I have on rescue. So I walked over. I found the aircraft commander. He was walking around. He was talking on the cell phone. He got done. And I walked up to him and I said, hey, sir, I introduced myself. And I said, uh, I said, I apologize. And he said, chief, what are you apologizing me for? And I said, look, I said, my guy should have chalked chalk your plane, you know, and this wouldn't happen. And he was like, chief, this is my plane. He says, I'm responsible for it. He said, I did not shut this down properly. He said, this whole thing's on me. Now, understand that that never made it into any official documents. That never made it into anything, you know, so it was just something for, from him to me. So uh, I walked back over, uh, 
to talk to the group. And by then the uh, CE commander had joined the group and I walked back over and again, you know, I don't know what to do, how to act or whatever. And the CE commander was laughing. That didn't sit well with me. So, you know, I basically impolitely asked him what he was laughing about. And he points to the B2 that was still sitting on the ground, you know, 300 yards away. And he goes, he goes, you got the B2, B2 over there. You got this one here. He said, you know, what, what else can you do but laugh? So about that time, the wing commander's vehicle pulls up and he's got the OG commander with him. And he gets out of the car and I walk over to him and I, and I tell him again, I said, sir, I said, you know, I apologize. I said, but this one's on us, you know, like on fire. And he was, uh, he's not one of those hair on fire kind of guys or cussing or, you know, anything. He just looked at me and he says, well, how do you figure that? And I said, well, we, we should have chalked the plane, you know, and we did. So he just walked away uh, and he went up to the aircraft commander and said what he had to say. So now it's BCE, AC station captain, AC prevention, myself. General comes walking up and uh, looks at me. In, in the most sternness of voice and said, I'm going to stand up the EOC again. And then he pointed at me, almost putting his finger in my chest and said, and you're in charge. So off he, off he goes. So then the CE commander looks at me and he's like, it's not so funny anymore. And I'm like, you think it's not so funny? So anyway, so away he goes. About that time I hear Cobra 2, which is the vice wing commander, come over the radio. He's like, Chief One Cobra Two. He says, can you meet me at building 123? I don't know what building it was. And I've never been to building 123. So all I can assume is that's the building where fire chiefs get fired at. So I hand my my portable to the deputy, Senior Lean, and uh, and I said, hey, I said, I, I think I'm about to go get fired. I said, so, you know, you're in charge. You're, you're, the, you're the fire chief. And his his like lip was quivering, you know, cause he, you know, he felt like, you know, he was watch, watching me go down and, and, and he didn't want me to go down. So I start driving across the runway and now I hear, uh, the wing commander call me on the radio. He's like, uh, chief one, Copa one, meet me over at Juliet taxiway or whatever. So I'm like, well, shit, I'm not, I'm not even going to get the building one, two, three, before I get fired. I'm going to get fired right here. So, uh, I go over to his vehicle and, uh, it's raining outside, you know, so I'm wearing my sexy white shirt. I get out and it's just poetic to me. I'm standing there in the rain and attention at, at, at his window, you know, and he looks at me and he goes, is it written anywhere where firefighters have to chalk aircraft? I'm like, no, sir. And he goes, well, you need to shut, shut the F up with that self-condemnation stuff. He says, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Now to backtrack slightly, uh, it's written now. It's a, it's a JT rule that was inserted after 2008 uh, in, in the 105-9, but it wasn't back then. So anyway, so off I go. I'm headed to uh, to this building where I still think I'm going to go get fired. And uh, basically, it was just the vice wing commander was telling me that part of the protocol, he was assigned as the interim safety board president. And the crew and anybody that had a significant role in the emergency was going to have to go get a urinalysis at the at the hospital just to make sure that they weren't hopped up and that wasn't you know part of the part of the reason everything going on so i left there went to the eoc in the cat and all the group commanders were sitting there watching the video of the incident that you can watch on youtube or google it or whatever and uh, they were kind of like 
giggling a little bit and making light of it. So uh, the station captain, I still don't remember how I got him over there, but the station captain was over there and, uh, and I leaned over to him and I was like, I, was like, I might, I might survive this after all. And about that time, like the bat phone in front of the MSG commander rings and, and he picks it up and then he, he looks right at me and he's like, uh, yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right away. And he hangs up the phone and he's like, chief, uh, wing commander wants you to see in his office. And I, I think I'm going to go with you. So it's like five o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. This happened at like noon, you know, and I'm like, I don't see how this can be good at all. So uh, off we go. He's in his staff car. I'm in my truck. And I, I called the vice wing commander. We had a pretty good relationship. And I said, hey, I said, the boss is calling me into his office. Any idea what I'm in for? And he's like, I don't know, man. He goes, he goes, all I can do is, is tell the truth and, and, and shoot him straight. And he says, uh, you know, good luck, you know, and I'm like, oh, thanks a lot, you know. So head into the wing headquarters building. There's nobody in the building except for the wing commander, one star. Go to his office, sit down, and uh, on his left across the, the table is the MSG commander, and I'm on the right. And the wing commander has this giant picture window on the, on the whole right side of his office, and it just overlooks the base and mainly the flight line. And he just kept looking out there and then looking at us. And he did this for what seemed like 10 minutes to me, but it was probably like 90 seconds or two minutes or something. And you were just like, in your mind, you were just like, say something, you know, what, what, what are we doing here? You know? So finally the embassy commander cracked, he couldn't handle it. So he was like, he was like, sir, uh, I, I, I know I wasn't invited. He says, but it's just a force of habit. Uh, I'm here to protect my guys. Wing commander just looks out the window again, looks back, you know, I got like this grapefruit in my throat, you know, that I'm, I'm trying to, trying to swallow. So finally he looks at the MSG commander and he goes, Mark, I didn't call him up here to pound on him. He said, I got several planes out over the Pacific headed to our base. He lost two fire trucks today. I need to know his capabilities. Do I got to turn those planes around or not? So I explained to the general that we had just got a truck back from depot. And we just got a new striker in and they were actually still green, even with losing the two P-23s. Uh, you know, so I, I gave him what he wanted to hear. And, and basically he, he, he told me to, you know, skedaddle. So I got up and I, I got to the threshold of the door and I'm a little heavier now than I was then, but uh, I was still a big boy. By the time I got to the threshold of the door, I ran out of the office just because I, I didn't want him to say, oh, by the way, you know, you're you're fired kind of thing, you know, or something like that. So so I thought I escaped uh, all that stuff. And uh, but, you know, what do you do? I mean, I don't know if you guys ever heard anything like that before, but I had never heard of that. So uh, I Friday night, I spent the night in the fire station. I didn't sleep a wink. I just kind of looked at the ceiling and, you know, Wondered if I need to learn how to be a truck driver or what, what was going to happen, you know? So Saturday was normally golf day, but I, I just went home and I think I was in shock. You know, I just sat at home and just really didn't do anything. And about six o'clock, I heard over the radio that they, uh, they had a crane out at the scene and they were going to lift the B1 up enough to drive the one P23 out from underneath it. Uh, that was, that basically chalked the plane, so to speak. Uh, so I, I drove to work, got chief one, and I went out there to, to check it out. And when I got there, uh, wing commander, vice wing commander were both there. And, uh, they came right over to me 
and uh, the wing commander says, uh, he says, John, he says, I, I, I want to tell you, he says, I just got off the phone with General Utterback. Now, General Utterback is the three-star, 13th Air Force commander at the time. So when you go back three weeks to the B-2, General Utterback and the four-star, the PACAF commander, that, that B-2 crash happened on a Saturday. They flew in on a Sunday to ju- just to witness it on their way to Kadena. And uh, so there was like 50 of us lined up on the on the flight line at the crash site, and and the four star and the three star came through. Well, the the three star and our one star were golfing buddies. So I had driven from the golf course when the B2 crashed in a golf cart to the fire station, and then gotten Chief One and responded out there. So when the three star went through the line, he shook my hand, but then he pulled me in, and he was like, Chief, says. That golf cart story, that's things legends are made of. So, you know, I, obviously, you know, I felt like I was, you know, Billy Badass or whatever, you know, I got a big chip in my pocket and I was a cool dude, but that lasted three weeks. So circle back to the phone call from uh, the, the generals telling me, he says, look, I just got a phone General Utterback and he wants you to know that he likes you and he likes what you're doing down here and you're going to be okay. And And I can't. I can't get it across in, in words to your listeners, you know, what, what a relief it was to hear that um, because I, you know, I really thought I, I was going down with the ship. I really did. So uh, it was just, it was, it was, it was crazy stuff, crazy stuff. So chief, I wonder um, why, why did you accept responsibility so quick? Was it just, was it, you were kind of in shock and, um, you know, we're responsible for these, for these aircraft and for the response and the emergency response of it. Is, is that why you kind of walked on scene and said, Hey, without even knowing, I guess the entire story, that's why you kind of raised your hand and said, I take responsibility. Yeah. I think that, you know, as firefighters, we look at our side and, you know, from, from the time we heard uh, the assistant chief yell on the radio until I got on scene three, four five minutes, whatever that was, you know, you're going over that with your deputy and you're using all your experience and you're, you're trying to wonder what goes on and, and, you know, how could we have avoided it? And obviously we could have avoided it if, if we would have chalked the plane. Now there's, there's two, three, four, five, six different other things that could have happened that could have prevented it too. So the runway that I crossed was closed because of the B2 crash. There was a maintenance crew that had got on scene like three or four minutes before the fire trucks did. They were sitting at, at the at the at that runway waiting for permission to cross, not knowing that it was treated like a taxiway and they didn't need to ask permission or else they would have been over there and chalked it to begin with. Uh, the pilot, um, the chief that I replaced at Anderson was a guy named Ralph Barone in late 2005. They had a B1 incident where uh, hydraulic failure, IFE. Uh, the plane pulled off onto a taxiway, one taxiway away from where this one happened, and the hydraulic fluid was leaking onto the hot brakes and caught on fire and exploded. And it was it was well known throughout the B1 community. So I think that that incident played a role in that our incident because I think the pilot was afraid because there, there was a, a huge amount of hydraulic fluid leaking out of his plane. So I think he was afraid that was going to happen to his plane. So he just wanted to get out of there and get his crew out of there. And, uh, and you know, so they shut down. So, again, you know, uh, it, 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 is it a blame? Is it is it, you know, us 100 percent? No, 
you know, but, but, uh, I don't know, maybe that's just my personality. So I don't know, man. Well, I think, I think you probably, um, that probably played a, a hand in, in you not being fired, not, not to say that you were going to get fired, but I think that that ownership, that level of ownership, just right off the bat, like, Hey, sir, you know, we take this one to the chest. If I lose my job, I lose my job. Mm. We're not, we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. I don't know that just from an outsider's perspective right. here in the story could have right. helped you out. Right. And, and, and I, it, it could, you know, there, there's, hundreds of things at play. So it could have very well, uh, have, have helped me out. You know, I don't know. I always say though, when, when I get the brief that, uh, you know, I feel like if the B1 would have happened before the B2, in my mind, I, I'm, I'm not sure I, that I survived. Chief, how did the two incidents within just a couple of weeks of each other weigh on the department? Uh, you know, the, the floor firefighters all the way up through the, the senior leaders. Well, just, just knowing that, uh, you know, if you've ever been at a place, you know, we're, we are so strange firefighters. So a fire is a cool thing, you know, a, a, a crash with no fatalities, you know, that, that is cool. That's we get to go do our job. So the, the B2 guys, you know, everybody involved in that, I mean, there was 47 achievement medals handed out, you know, the, the, we didn't get to save, you know, the pilots, they ejected, uh, but what those guys did that day uh, inadvertently saved the black box, which, which got the fleet from being grounded so that we could go on protecting our country and, and, and doing what we do, you know, so, so you go from that extreme of, you know, you know, we're, we're awesome. We're firefighters, we're sexy. And then you go to, uh, you know, anybody being involved in that. Uh, if, if someone will admit that they were on duty that day, they're going to have to be liquored up or they're going to be whispering or, or something like that, you know? So it's just one of those things where, so, so it's, it, it was a huge, huge shift in, in, in how, how they felt. And nobody was injured, um, during, during either response, I, I assume. Well, so the, the B2, we did have one, uh, one, one GS8, uh, stepped off of the first arriving crash truck and he blew his knee out. Uh, so, but that, that was the only injury uh, of the two, uh, the, the B2, I mean, we, we could have, uh, you know, when I, when I look back at that in, in history, I mean, when you look at planes, uh, majority of planes, when they crash, they, they ain't flying again, but sometimes we don't think about that, you know? So when you, you, you think about risk a lot to save a lot, uh, sometimes you just get tunnel vision into fire, must put out fire, you know, type thing. And, uh, some of the pictures that we were allowed to see of that thing, uh, you know, I had eight guys right, right up, you know, kissing the wing and it was never going to fly again, you know? So it, it was scaring me that it burned for six and a half hours. And, and I thought, you know, that this, this, this just shouldn't happen. I've never heard of this happening. So, uh, you know, we got to do everything we can to put it out, but in the end, uh, you know, it, we, we weren't really saving anything except for a little bit of evidence, you know, mm -hmm. chief, in, in addition to the chalking policy that you said you implemented following the B1 incident, it, are there any, were there any other policy changes as a result of either the B1 or the B2? So the, one of the things that came out of the, of the, the B1, the, the basically the situation that happened is you had four crash trucks set up, two off rescue, two off rescue. And for whatever reason, the off rescue guys got out of the way. The rescue side guys didn't get out of the way. Part, part of what I believe happened is 
if you ever get to see the video, the, the guys, the visually from off rescue side, looking at the plane, they had the jungle in the background as a backdrop. So when the plane started to move ultra slowly and roll, you could see that contrast and see that it was moving. The guys on the rescue side just had the blue sky as a backdrop. And I, I don't think they had the, the time. By the time they figured out it was moving, I think I read in the report that B1 weighs like 166,000 pounds. You know, you, you had time to pucker and, and, and run basically is, is really all, all they could do. So they were all out of their trucks. They were looking for chalks uh, based off of the request from the uh, rescue crew chief and uh, at least the re rescue side guys. And they looked up, saw the plane coming and, and they just got out of the way, you know, almost in the nick of time. Chief, you mentioned at the beginning of the story, um, a bit about your rescue truck, maybe being a little bit understaffed. Um, would you mind expanding on that? And then maybe talking about other lessons learned that have come out of that incident? Sure. So for those of us who've been around a, a couple of days, they know that, uh, in that time frame, uh, there was a, a manning reduction in, across the air force fire protection called PBD 720. I want to say that the air force fire had to give up 900 or so positions. And PACAF's bill to pay for that was 13 firefighters per uh, base, basically. So I think Anderson went from like 82 to 69 firefighters, give or take. So we were trying to man three fire stations at the time with 13 firefighters on duty. And uh, that was extremely difficult. You, know, you just you do all the geometry you want, but uh, there's only so many ways to split it. So, you know, we came up with either making like a, a rescue crew on on a crash truck or a two-man rescue crew and and i think both could be or would be effective but uh, the lesson learned is is not training before we did that sometimes at least for me i don't know how it is for other folks but you get enamored by the fifth bugle and and knowing that that you get to do whatever the hell it is you want to do you're the boss so I was kind of mad, you know, that, that I had to give up 13 bodies. And uh, so I, I just, you know, came in after the holidays and said, bang, this is what we're going to do. We're going to shoot from the hip and we're just going to go to a two-man rescue crew. And, but, but we're not going to train on it. So, uh, and it wasn't a, a conscious decision. I just wasn't smart enough to know that it was such a big muscle movement that I should have trained on it before I implemented During the B2, it, it didn't hurt us. But uh, when I got out on scene, I asked the incident commander about the crew. And uh, I, I got a, a, a vague answer that, that I didn't like. And essentially what happened was all the crash crews went straight to the plane. They're, they're 20,000 gallon pit fire going on. They're going to go to the plane. The ambulance crew that was working out of the fire department, they went to where the pilots were. And, uh, and I ended up going over there and actually helping to, to carry the, uh, the pilot out myself. Uh, so anyways, it, it just is either way you were going to handle it. The, the lesson learned is anytime you have a, a major departure from the standard procedure, you have to train it because realistically, you know, you guys may not be old enough to understand or remember, but rescue crew, three man rescue crew. If you ask somebody who chalks the plane, it's the backseater. So if you don't have a backseater, the plane's not going to get chalked unless you have trained, you know, with the, uh, the 
the driver or the crew chief, you know, chalking it or whatever. So that was something we definitely screwed up. Chief, after it was all said and done, I imagine there was an investigation into uh, one or both of the incidents that happened. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, investigations, two types, safety investigation board, which is one they're going to do every time. Uh, there's a class A incident uh, that will do a safety investigation board. Uh, and then if it's bad enough, then the, the, they will do what's called an AIB or an accident investigation board. And that is supposed to be to answer a groundswell, groundswell of public information requests. And it also is to uh, assign blame. So in this case, originally, they weren't planning on doing an AIB. They were just going to do the SIB. And three, four weeks after our incident, there was an incident you may or may not have heard of at Al-Udid Air Base where uh, a B-1 landed, hydraulic failure, rolled into a six-foot-tall jersey barrier, exploded. Uh, crew got out through the top. And during the... Uh, the fire then ensued, 12 to 15 live bombs detonated and blew the plane apart and damaged a couple of other aircraft in the area. So the planes were both from the same squadron at Ellsworth, and the ACC commander decided that he wanted to do a, a joint AIB for that. So if you go back to the SIB, Safety Investigation Board, uh, typically firefighters are not going to be involved in any safety investigation board unless it has something, some, some fire flavor to it. So there was fire flavor to the B1. And then I found out through the grapevine that the sitting fire chief, fire chief at Seymour Johnson was coming to be part of the SIB team at Anderson. So, uh, if, if, if you understand the, the investigation world, that should puffer you up that the one sitting fire chief is going to come and come and dig through your stuff. So uh, they got on scene uh, and, you know, he knows what to look for. He, he, he went through driver's training records. He went through training records. He did some interviews and he just uncovered some stuff that, that a, I, I was asleep at the wheel on. So uh, after cards, there was, there was too many blank signatures, you know, so it just gives the impression that we're not checking our stuff. Out. The other piece was, uh, you know, some of the testimony was that the kids that were in the truck, so they put it in reverse to try and get out of the way and the truck wouldn't move. So uh, he asked other drivers uh, in the station and he, and he basically got the thing that, oh, yeah, that happens all the time with the P-23s. So he's like, well, what do you do? He says, well, normally we just shift back into neutral and then back into reverse. And then usually it goes in, you know, the second time, you know, so it was news to me. But I just think that that all the kids I was getting in at Anderson, it was normal to them. So they never wrote it up. They, they never did anything. Uh, so Chief Wade did uh, did. I think he did like 25 reverse, you know, did, did the thing 25 times and 25 percent of the time on each truck. Uh, it, it went into reverse. You could hear the backup signal and you could see the lights, but it never actually went into reverse. So it was just a systematic issue with the truck, uh, you know, that had to be looked at. Were those issues just there with the trucks there at Guam or 
Uh, did they find it to be enterprise wide? I, I don't know enterprise wide, but I, I, you know, P23 is not not regarded as the as the best truck that we've ever had. So sure. Uh, but but I do know that it happened at other places. I just don't know that it at at, at the same same thing across the board. Chief, can you tell us how long the aircraft was out after the incident? Yeah, I, they sent a depot team in. So uh, I, I, most fire departments probably don't know what a depot team is, but they sent a depot team in series of, of mechanics in the, in the Anderson and they were TDY there for, I think over a year. And they actually, uh, reached out to, uh, Davis Moth and got some donor wings and a couple other things and, uh, did some repairs. Uh, and then they flew, they flew the plane back, back to Ellsworth sometime in 2009. So it was, it was out for a, a, a minute. That's for sure. So the plane did fly again. It did. Well, and then the, the, the other story, the one that Chief Barone had back in uh, late 2008, that one had significant fire damage. And from what I understand, Air Force wanted to send it to the DM and Congress overrode them and, and made them fix it. Uh, so that one, that one sat at Anderson for, I think, three years while the depot team did their stuff. So I don't know. I don't know how how excited I would be to be that guy that, that gets to fly the thing back, you know, over the pond, you know, or whatever. So, but, uh, so anyways, yeah, there's, there's, it was a bad year at Anderson for, uh, for bombers. That's for sure. We had the B2 crash in February, the B1 in March. We had a team deployed to IUD when the, the one blew up in, in April. And then tragically we had a B52 crash, uh, for liberation day in July, uh, it was going to do a flyover of the parade in um, Guam and, uh, never made it to the parade scene, crashed out in the ocean and, uh, five aviators Paris, including, uh, Colonel Martin, our, uh, our, uh, flight surgeon at Anderson. So, uh, high state guy, great dude. Uh, so, you know, crashes are one thing I've been lucky. Uh, but you know, when, when, when there's fatalities involved, it, it just ramps things up, you know, tenfold. So, Chief, I understand that uh, you, you and your your cohorts are known as the disaster crew. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that that's uh, I, I I like talking about that. So uh, that came up 2016. Uh, the chief up at uh, Fairchild. Nobody knows how to say his last name, so Chief Chemo, everybody calls him. So uh, Chief Chemo, they were going to have an air show that summer in 2016, and they had an awesome. Uh, MSG commander, uh, female 06, uh, CE type, and her name escapes me right now. But she reached out to chemo and said, Hey, man, why don't you bring in some, uh, some fire chief types that have had some major incidents and they could come in and brief our EOC and our senior leadership and make sure that we're ready for the air show. And I thought it was a great idea. So thinking about crashes and stuff like that, I guess my name comes to mind fairly quickly. So he got a hold of me. Uh, I think she had a relationship. The MSG commander had known Chief Giuliano. So originally it was going to be Chief Giuliano myself. And then I turned him on to Chief Donan and he was going to brief the C-17 from 2010 and uh, the air show up there. And uh, at the last minute, they shifted it a week and Chief Giuliano couldn't come in. So uh, I was talking to Chief Smith out at Beale and uh, he was like, man, I'd love to come up there for that. I could talk about my uh, U2 crash that we had last year. So we were just going up there and, and we 
got formed basically because of that. And then we started texting just so we could say, hey, we're going to this hotel or we land at this time or whatever. And that group text has gone on since 2016. And, and we talk every day. Uh, you know, Kimo tells me how bad Ohio State is. And, you know, we, we tease each other. We talk about work. We talk about life. We talk about everything. But it, it's just been a an awesome thing for me and and i encourage you know everybody to uh you know to to tap into the resources of, of your bros from other bases and stuff like that uh and, and use that stuff so i mean when, when something comes up at ramstein or or whatever just just yesterday I, I i sent them an email and i was like you know hey you guys got this and they're all like yep i got it i got it i got it so uh you know it's hard to stump stump that group um we, we think we're cool. Uh, we're probably not as cool as we think we are, but anyway, so it's, it's, it's been a great thing for me. Chief, I know you talked about the video a little bit in the beginning. Where can, where can people find that video? Right. So I, th I think you just Google search it or, or YouTube it. it. It's on YouTube. Uh, and, and the, you don't get the, the cool spliced one with, with the radio traffic. It's just a tower video. Uh, that was shot on top of the tower, uh, like mechanical thing. And, uh, but it, it shows everything exactly. And, and you can see the, the firefighters running around. You can see the maintainers coming out, the maintainers, the crew members coming from, from underneath the plane. And, uh, as I read the report, uh, I don't remember how many people were on there, but a couple of them got to that, that ladder that looks down on the bottom of the plane and saw the ground moving so fast. They were like, nah, -uh. I am not getting off this plane. I'm afraid I'm going to get run over or whatever. So uh, it's a miracle that uh, no one got hurt or killed. A uh, lot of, a lot of taxpayer dollars went down that day, but, but no lives and, and stuff like that. But uh, I always think to myself, you know, we were talking about earlier about how I survived or what, or why I survived. I think part of it, I'm, I'm a big into fate. And uh, I think I survived to, to do stuff like this, you know, to, to, to tell you guys, uh, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And uh, so you guys don't don't uh, experience the same career pitfalls that I experienced and, and don't truck any more planes with trucks. All right, Chief Will, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and, and talk with us. And, and thanks so much for being transparent and, and, you know, putting yourself out there and putting I don't want to call them mistakes, but just your experiences out there and some lessons learned. And, and uh, I know that's going to help. I know that's going to help our listeners. I know that's going to help me really appreciate you being humble and, and willing to do that. So do you have anything else that you'd like to share before we finish up? Ben and Matt, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I think this is a great opportunity uh, to, to talk to hopefully hundreds of, uh, of my, my counterparts out there or whatever. And, and one more thought that, that comes into this, you know, uh, Hopefully I'll get to this in the next segment or whatever, but uh, being fire chief is cool and being assistant chief is cool. And I think everybody, you know, gets enamored by the, the bugles and all that stuff. But understand that uh, the buck stops with you and uh, it's not all peaches and cream. And, and uh, you know, just like with, with the B1, essentially what happened that day was Chief 2 said, uh, you know, dispatch aircraft is fire safe. Please give me alert photographer. And call Chief One. So what he's saying in a nutshell is call the guy that's responsible for everything that just happened that wasn't on scene to the scene. Now, I wasn't on scene, but 
the guy that was sitting in chief two, how did he get there? I put him there. I put him there and I had a couple people that, uh, fire chiefs and a couple of senior fire officers told me not to put him there. Uh, but I'm stubborn and I felt like some of his weaknesses were my strengths. I could OJT him up and, uh, but what I couldn't see through, you know, forest of the trees kind of thing is you can't be everywhere all the time. And whoever you put in that seat, the chief two, they are you, they are the fire chief. So they're responsible for the base and the lives and the claims, but they're also responsible for your job. So don't, don't just hire your bro. Don't just hire somebody that you owe a favor. They either got the goods or they don't got the goods. And, and boy, I learned that the hard way. And as I, I talked to you guys before I came on the air, almost every difficult decision that I make, you know, from 2008 till now, that B1 incident has played a, a part in, in me thinking about it. So uh, I, I'm, I'm leery. Uh, I'm leery about, you know, going down that road again. But, but you can rest assured that, that I ain't making the same mistake twice. Chief, that's what it's all about is telling stories. Um, I think that's an important part of what we're doing here is bringing these stories to maybe an audience who hasn't heard it before. So, again, we appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Chief. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content just like this regularly posted to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. That's facebook.com forward slash the Fire DAWG Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share these podcasts with your friends and coworkers. This is host Matt Wilson with co host Ben Perry and Chief John Thompson. Until next time, stay safe.